When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. everyone, and thank you for joining me. I'm Tracy Harris, and this is At Home in My Head, the podcast that explores life in the cottage at Woodland Corners. Today's episode is part of a seven-part series titled Religious Self-Destruction that examines indoctrination using models borrowed from identity psychology. I'll be explaining what indoctrination means to me and why I consider it a distinctly unique process that should be differentiated from other life experiences. This series mirrors articles found at the At Home in My Head blog, each of which contains links to sources and citations used in this podcast. A link to the table of contents for the Religious Self-Destruction article series is also included in the description, along with links to support and resources for those who come out of indoctrination. And now for Episode 7, the final episode in the Religious Self-Destruction series, Making Low Explorations Seem High, followed by a summary of the series. In Part 6, we discuss the emotional manipulation used to undermine self-confidence and create a sense of urgency that results in a push to limit exploration and rush a commitment. In Part 7, we're going to look at methods that focus on allowing exploration, but ensuring that the effort does not result in productive work. This is how Christians are made to feel as though they are exploring seriously and robustly without ever considering any serious challenges to their beliefs. It's why people like me became defensive when we were told we'd never questioned or investigated. The problem wasn't that we weren't devoted to study, it was that we were devoted to unproductive study. The following section addresses propaganda and how conservative Christianity inoculates us against other ideologies. Today, as a deconvert, if I wanted to understand what Buddhists or Catholics or Muslims believe, I would ask them. I would visit the local mosque or temple or cathedral. I would Google to find sites about their history and ideology. I would go to the source. In conservative churches, however, this would not be ideal. These competing worldviews are considered sinful and wrong, and some people I went to church with would have refused to even enter a place of worship that was not Protestant Christian. In part six, we read some Christian quotes talking about how Satan sows the seeds of doubt, and so there would be an inherent danger in going to talk to your neighbors at the mosque because Satan could use this as an opportunity to confuse you with doubts. As a deconvert, I understand now this is a long-winded way to say don't question, but at the time, with everything else I'd been subjected to, it wasn't clear to me. Church knows, though, that these ideologies exist. They're out there. And as a point of curiosity, some young people in the church are going to have questions. The last thing you want is to send these young, impressionable people into Satan's den to hear attractive lies. So what's a pastor to do? You inoculate them with propaganda. You strawman your competition, and you do it in the form of a course or even a series of courses in a classroom setting. Maybe you even have reading assignments and hand out materials. The trick is to get the person to believe they have explored, so that later, when they commit, they believe that commitment is justified and well-founded. 
Additionally, in this case, the fact they've heard a lecture or taken classes providing information about another ideology means they are now less likely to seek the information independently and potentially find unbiased or accurate explanations which are far less ridiculous than the straw man examples supplied by the church. You create an impression of a valid learning environment, and then you disseminate misinformation. People in the class believe they're learning about these competing ideologies, but in fact what they're learning would never be considered as orthodoxy by the groups being examined. Here are a few real-world examples from religious websites that folks raised in conservative Christianity will recognize. When I was in the church, this is what we were taught. Quote, In reality, though, a Buddhist will not readily admit it. Buddha is the god of Buddhism. End quote. The only true part of the statement is that a Buddhist would not admit to it, readily or otherwise, because it's not what Buddhists believe. After studying Buddhism when I was older, I actually confronted our preacher to say we were misrepresenting the ideology. He took issue with the fact I'd gone out on my own to read Buddhist texts. Remember, the foreclosed identity is only interested in the belief-confirming narrative, not the belief-challenging one. It was only okay to learn about Buddhism in a way that supported the Christian worldview, which required distorting their beliefs. But if I want to know what Buddhists believe, the appropriate source for that is Buddhists not Christians. The next example involves Catholics. This is a quote from a religious website for conservative Christians. People worship the Pope. You can call it whatever you want, but if we study what the Bible is showing here, he is worshipped. The next quote, the Roman Church has deified Mary, end quote. Again, you would be hard-pressed to find a Catholic who agrees with these claims about what they believe. And once more, the top quote admits this, call it what you want. In other words, Catholics wouldn't call it this. And if we want to know what Catholics believe, what's the best source? Catholics, not conservative Protestants. The author is priming the reader by suggesting that Catholics won't admit it and may call it something else, but it's worship of the Pope. The author has poisoned the well, now when a Catholic starts to explain their view of the Pope, it's just other words for worship. The next section involves straw men about atheists. We know there is no God. We hate God. We just want to sin. We secretly know God exists and so on. You can Google for any of this. Most deconverts or atheists who have already engaged apologists are familiar with all of these. It would surprise Buddhists to hear they worship Buddha, just as it would surprise Catholics to learn they worship statues, the Pope, or Jesus' mother. Atheists are similarly surprised by some of the claims made about them, as well as confused by the incompatibility of these ideas. For example, what does it mean for someone who does not believe a God exists to be angry at God? Another substantial benefit of offering these classes inside the confines of the church is that people are less likely to pursue the information they already have. By preemptively providing misinformation about other ideologies, the church decreases the motivation for someone to research on their own, potentially encountering honest information that could present challenges to their beliefs. Why go looking for information that's sitting in your lap? I want to stress here that I believe most pastors and church teachers obtain their lecture information from similarly inaccurate sources. I'm not saying that the lessons provided at the local congregation level are intentionally dishonest. The person delivering the talk is likely to have been indoctrinated themselves. 
As a Christian, information I was provided involving claims about general history, science, Bible origins, and the early church were similarly distorted. In my case, after I went off to college, other classmates challenged what I'd been taught on many fronts. I researched at the university library with the intention of relocating the evidence I'd been exposed to in order to defend my positions to them. I fully intended to prove them wrong. But when I found, instead, multiple and varied sources confirming I was incorrect on all counts, I began to realize the source I had trusted, my church, was not reliable. This called many things into question and started me on a path that ultimately led to my deconversion. But what if I hadn't been challenged by my peers? Would I have ever doubted or sought to verify the information that I trusted? Consider that many conservative brands of Christianity homeschool or use religious schools, where challenges like the ones I encountered will be more rare. For those who were never indoctrinated, I urge you to consider all of this next time you're telling a conservative Christian that they should study these other areas. They believe they have intensely studied them and are likely to take offense at your dismissal of their years of investigation. The problem is not that they haven't investigated. It's that they've avoided primary sources and instead been hoodwinked by dubious ones. Another tool in the bag of indoctrination is tying up adherents with busy work. One thing that's done is that they're given invalid evidence. The next tool to put walls around the sandbox is invalid evidence. If I put you to work spending time and energy using inefficient processes that keep you spinning your wheels, then time and effort devoted to efficient methods demonstrated to yield better results will be reduced. So, for example, faith is given as a justification for belief. A lot of energy is put into promoting and defending the idea of faith as justification and foundation of belief in God and religion. Faith is defined as a form of belief which can sometimes be unjustified. Regardless, the end result is a tautology. I believe because I believe. It justifies nothing, and yet the amount of effort put into defending faith as a foundation for Christianity is enormous. Here is one example of how it's expressed. Quote, We are saved by God's grace through our faith. We are only saved because God loves us enough to give us that gift, but the catch is that we must believe upon his Son before we can accept it. We are saved because we believe in Christ, our Savior, not because we have knowledge that Christ is the Savior. End quote. So I'm saved if I believe it, and my belief is based on faith, not knowledge. My belief is based on belief. Many sermons have been crafted around this idea. Another iteration is the faith-not-evidence framing. By convincing people that if they can grow their faith sufficiently, they will then have justification for belief, you can put them to work on all sorts of exercises that are claimed to help increase and maintain faith. For example, how to find God is a hot topic for Christian websites. Many sites online offer a sample prayer you can use to begin a relationship with God. People are encouraged to continue praying until it works. One often used phrase is, pray until something happens. These exercises include disclaimers that you have to pray with an honest agenda to invite God into your life and self. So you have to already believe before this method will supposedly even work. But most importantly, prayer is simply a form of meditation. It may help us relax and focus, but there's no reason to believe it's an effective tool for exploration of the validity of our beliefs or values. The more time spent in prayer, the less time expended on productive exploration and inquiry, such as research into the origins of religion and human belief in gods. Additionally, they then promote invalid methods of investigation. For example, praying for signs and revelations. Here's a quote. 
If you should die now, do you know that you would go to heaven? If you cannot answer yes to the above question, God has sent this message to you. Please read it over and over, praying until it's clear and you're sure. End quote. This quote was also used in Part 6 to illustrate high-pressure tactics. Here, I'm repeating it as an example of an unproductive method. If you read the last sentence, you'll see the adherent is being told that even if it fails repeatedly, they should continue praying and reading indefinitely until it works. Additionally, what exactly is supposed to happen is unclear. When you talk to Christians about signs or revelations, it's all over the map. From finding a feather, to seeing a shooting star, to having an internal feeling of some sort, it's endless because there are no specifications around what constitutes a legitimate sign or miracle. So just keep praying and waiting until something happens that you can attach a meaning to. Again, it's a potentially endless exercise, and I've met some Christians who spent years using this process before something happened they could interpret as a success, or in some other cases, after years of trying, they finally just gave up. This is neither an efficient nor an effective method of exploring the legitimacy of our values and beliefs. It may also be why so many Christians will admit that their evidence won't convince anyone else. If it's centered around finding something, anything, I can attach some personal significance to, then obviously it won't be convincing to anybody except me. But anything that subjective ultimately is useless. Subjectively meaningful to me, perhaps, but not a good method of investigation. Here's another quote. The seeking for God is the conscious effort to get through the natural means to God himself, to constantly set our minds toward God in all our experiences, to direct our minds and hearts toward him through the means of his revelation. This is what seeking God means. End quote. That quote is meaningless. Heart has no unique meaning in religion. Basically, what this passage is saying is to give it your all. Put your heart into it. Focus on God, focus on God, focus on God. Again, busy work. This is not exploration. This is not a good way to challenge values and beliefs. It's a good way to simply maintain them by immersing oneself in them 24-7. This is not growth. It's psychological stagnation disguised as spiritual growth. The next issue is how to deal with all of that cognitive dissonance and all of those doubts. In part three, I shared a quote from a correspondence with Dr. Dombeck where he described the problem with a foreclosed identity. Here's the quote. I think you could sum it up by saying that a person with foreclosed identity would be forever in a state of internal dissonance and so would experience at some level, whether noticed consciously or not, some internal conflict, stress, and pain. And I think also be very shame prone. We would expect them to deny this vigorously, of course, at least in public, but I would bet money it would be there. End quote. In reviewing the research, we found that ACT was focused on helping people to confront these conflicts in a healthy way, using and developing psychological flexibility. Foreclosed identity, which exhibits inflexibility, correlates to a large number of psychopathologies. Compare the ACT approach to the conservative Christian take on how to deal with this same internal dissonance. Here's the quote from the Christian. Doubt is a tool of Satan to make us lack confidence in God's word and consider his judgment unlikely. Lest we think that we can lay all of the blame on Satan, the Bible clearly holds us accountable for our own doubts. End quote. So in act, doubts are useful flags that alert us to issues we need to examine. In conservative Christianity, doubts are Satan's tool to undermine our belief and, quote, accountable for our own doubts, unquote, is the language of blame and shame. You are responsible for your own satanic doubts. 
this is certainly not indicative of allowing a person the flexibility to investigate further, which would be the productive way to handle internal conflict. Next quote. Satan will try to make us doubt the power of God, but we must resist it by saying, do not put the Lord your God to the test. End quote. Just put those doubts straight out of your head. Get thee behind me, Satan. Again, this is the opposite of psychological flexibility. This is foreclosure and inflexibility. An unwillingness or inability to address a concern, to unpack it, face it, handle it, examine it, and decide what to make of it. Previously, we saw that foreclosure includes running to belief-confirming sources in times of doubt, while achieved identities consider both confirming and challenging sources. When you believe that challenges are a type of evil that can put you in extreme peril, you aren't as inclined to be comfortable with them and address them. The conservative Christian runs to the confirming sources because the challenging sources are evil intended to destroy their values. Reaching back to the SASB model, doubts in conservative Christianity are addressed through blaming and ignoring. The larger problem is that ignoring the conflict means not resolving it, in the same way ignoring your check engine light doesn't make the engine trouble go away. In fact, it only persists and it may get worse. And as if all of this weren't enough, they then undermine valid methods of investigation. Answers in Genesis.org and Creation.com are conservative Christian websites that feature articles designed to undermine the validity of scientific dating methods, rock layers, starlight, fossils, paleontology in general, geology, genetics, and even quantum mechanics. Any legitimate field of academia that happens to run afoul of conservative Christian claims about verifiable reality is likely to end up with articles posted on these sites. You may recall at the start of this article, we talked about propaganda and how the church uses straw man versions of different worldviews and ideologies to inoculate young Christians against these ideas for two reasons. First, if you feel you already understand something, you're less likely to seek information about it. But next, if you do come across a primary source of information, you've already been warned, oh, this is what they'll say they believe, but really I'm telling you what they actually believe. So adherents are less likely to seek it but also less likely to believe a source they've been forewarned is dishonest. The Discovery Institute, or the Center for Science and Culture, is another conservative Christian project dedicated to misinformation about science. Following is a tactic they sometimes use. An article at their site, Why Darwinism is False, claims that drawings by Haeckel from the 1860s show similarities in vertebrate embryos were a fraud. While they were more controversy than fraud, the goal is to disparage science. There can be fraud in science. There can be errors in science. There can be a situation where the best data available leads to a wrong or incomplete model in science. None of this, however, makes religious claims a better source of information. The fact is, science is a demonstrably better tool when it comes to verifying claims about the world around us. If I want to understand how the Earth is formed, Science, not a Bible, is the source to use. For people who weren't indoctrinated into conservative Christianity, this sounds obvious. But if you've been paying attention to this series so far, I hope you're beginning to see why someone who is indoctrinated would not immediately understand this. Undermining legitimate sources of exploration keeps adherents from confronting challenges to their beliefs. Another method is misrepresenting the science goals. Here's a quote. What many evolutionists are trying to convince you of is that there is no need for a creator. End quote. 
Conservative Christians believe this. The range of opinions is small and extends from scientists are unwitting agents of Satan to scientists are atheists who hate God and want to disprove God exists. They believe that every morning, evolutionary biologists, geneticists, scientists who attest to the age of the earth or the universe, paleontologists, all wake up motivated to attack Christian beliefs. It doesn't matter that these researchers rarely try to apply their findings to religion, and it doesn't matter that most of them are, in fact, theists themselves. The fact that their findings do not support Christian claims is sufficient to take them down using any means necessary. Whether that means attacking the findings or the researchers themselves, whatever it takes to undermine them as a source of exploration. To summarize, when I talk about indoctrination, it includes imposing an identity that doesn't match the person's innate identity. It's not just teaching something false or wrong. It's not just lying to someone. It goes much deeper into a person's psyche than any of those things. If you were raised in a church where you were encouraged to investigate without restrictions on sources, or where your atheist siblings were just as much a loved part of the family as your theist siblings, then you probably were not what I would call indoctrinated. I'm talking about a systemic process where tools and methods are employed in an attempt to create a foreclosed identity and psychological inflexibility that literally puts people's mental health and well-being at risk. When I gave this talk earlier in 2019, I asked people how many of them would have died rather than recant their Christian belief at gunpoint. Just lie and say you don't believe it in order to save your life in the immediate situation. If you were in the camp that would have died, the likelihood you were indoctrinated is pretty high. The methods I've identified from my Christian past include the following. Number one, attack the person. Attack child with blame and shame to achieve self-suppression of natural identity. Number two, introject an identity. Clearly communicate expected, unattainable, acceptable identity that the child can adopt and to which they must cling. Number three, Covertly restrict exploration. Provide false sense of exploration to assist in restricting and subverting access to information and valid exploration. Number four, incorporate pressure. Use threats to maximize this effect. And lastly, the result is a psychologically inflexible foreclosed person who clings to an introjected identity experiencing a constant state of internal conflict they believe is necessary and which can only be temporarily remedied by renewed commitment to rejecting their natural identity in order to avoid total destruction, a recipe that puts the child at risk for a litany of common psychological disorders. The last time I gave this talk in 2019, I was confronted by a woman who asked, so what do I do now? She broke down in tears and explained she was seeing a therapist. I didn't have an answer for her. I simply expressed that therapy was a good start and that I hoped I'd provided her with some vocabulary and tools to help her gain understanding of what exactly happened to her with her religious upbringing. Since it took me 20 years to finally recognize the elements laid out in this series, I'm doubtful I'll live to see the cure. But my hope would be for people to begin to recognize the toxicity of fundamentalism and how it operates to create situations that are conducive to a litany of mental health problems. The tools and methods used in conservative Christianity to indoctrinate adherents should be acknowledged as abusive for this reason. And while I'm willing to acknowledge the people promoting this sincerely believe they're doing something positive, they're still putting children at risk of harm.
that's it for this episode of At Home in My Head, exploring life in the cottage at Woodland Corners. Thanks for listening, and don't forget to check out the information and support links in the description. As always, stay safe, be well, and never stop exploring. 